They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's Omri certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we have Valerie Jarrett, the former advisor to President Obama and current board member of Lyft, and we have John Zimmer, the CEO of Lyft. I'm excited to talk to them because I learned so much in this episode. 15 million eligible voters did not turn out in the 2016 election due to transportation issues. So we decided to take action. We're giving free rides to those in underserved areas that don't have access and can't afford transportation. And we're giving discounted rides to everyone across the country because voting is an American ideal and, and something that we stand for. And we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. Now, before we get started, there was this great quote that I saw online. It was unattributed, and it said, gut feelings are guardian angels. You know, and I brought that because we often have a feeling about the work that we're involved in, situations we're in, like an orientation to a certain issue or like how we should respond. And sometimes we can we can like intellectualize and, and sort of overthink so much that we lose a fidelity to our gut. And like our gut is actually guardian angel. I think about like what brought me to the street in 2014. I think about when we publicly supported Hillary and people told us we weren't right, but we we felt like we had to do something in that moment that they would, this is like what was right, even if it wasn't popular. I think about a host of issues where like we've trusted our gut. I think about all the work we did around policing and research. People told us we were wasting our time. This wasn't right. I even think about this podcast is that people were like, why would you do that? It's not important. You know, I even think about our format. People like, why are you focused on the news? People don't know you need to be talking about Trump. And at every step of the way, I try to follow my gut because my gut has always been a guardian angel in this work. So you should think about things deeply. You should be critical. You should imagine. You should weigh the pros and cons. You should also remember that your gut is your guardian angel. Let's go. Hey, y'all. It's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith III. Aye, aye, aye. And this is DeRay at DeRay, D-E-R-A-Y on Twitter. Sam, haven't you been out of the country? Twice. Twice. I was in Medellin in Colombia for about a week nice, and then nice. came back to the U.S. and then immediately went to Canada. And I was in two cities in Canada, uh, in Windsor and then Toronto. Any big takeaways to share? Uh, I mean, Medellin was fascinating in part because of its history. Um, and like, I just didn't know a lot about Colombia and the history. I think, you you know, in the U.S., a lot of what you hear is sort of like narcos and all yeah, of this. All drugs all, all the time. Yeah, it's like drugs and yeah. like violence and, and all of that in the 90s. Um, and I'm still fascinated. I still have a lot of questions, but, you know, it's a lot different now. And so my big question is like, what changed, right? So how did, like, how did a country go from, or a city like Medellin from being like the most dangerous city in the world to being like relatively safe and like stable and, you know, all of these different changes having occurred over the course of like one or two decades. Um, so I have more questions than I have answers, but it's definitely an interesting case study for how things can turn around. And, uh, you know, I'm wondering what factors were in play to make that happen. 
Clint, you, we haven't heard about your work in so long. You are doing stuff in jails in D.C. What's up? Yeah, so so folks, I think, know that I, my, my work, uh, my sort of doctoral work focuses a lot on incarceration. And since I moved to D.C. a year and a half, two years ago, I've been working in D.C. jail. And I've been working with men, uh, excuse, young men uh, between age 18 to 24 in the the young men's uh, group that that DC jail has, and and it's been a very different experience uh, because I think what it means to be, again, sometimes in the in the sort of nomenclature around incarceration, people forget that prison and jail are two different things. So prison is where you go, just as a reminder, after you have been sentenced and uh, after you've gone to trial and. Uh, jail is where you often are in a sort of holding period or where you come when you are about to um, go back into in a sort of broader society. And so so it's fascinating working with people who are just becoming adults and and sort of figuring out who they are in relation to the world. And, and, it, and it really illuminates the trajectory that that people uh, that people's lives are put on. Right. And, and, and I, we talk about this all the time. But, you know, these are so many of these dudes, they're just like good Good kids. They're good people. They're good. Yeah. What's your uh, age range? Fo- between eighteen and twenty-four. Eighteen and twenty-four. So it's been really special, and and I, I work with Free Minds Book Club, uh, who's an incredible organization doing incredible work, and I'm grateful to to be a part of that team. But uh, I think for me, it's just it's a reminder. You know, I, I think about the sort of theoretical nature of this all the time. You know, sit around reading Foucault and and all these sort of uh, you know carceral prison theory folks, and and I think that's important and, and grounds my uh, intellectual commitment to the work, but it's a very different thing when you go inside a cage and mm. and you are like, man, these are mm-hmm. we put people in cages and and Every and then you leave day. and uh, and you realize and you remember that like, but for the arbitrary nature of birth and circumstance, it could have very easily been me right. yep. on the other side of that cage instead of instead of somebody who's able to walk out. So um, I'm grateful to to be in there and and there's some good stuff happening there. That's awesome, Clint. I'm very sure that you're planting some seeds. So. Excited to see it. what comes of that for you and your students. I'm just trying to be like y'all. That's all. <laughs> Clip for the people. Clip for the you know, people. I got my, awesome, I got my awesome little bracelet saying, what would Brittany, DeRay, and Sam do? <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> um, you know, I'm glad that we were able to talk about some happy and exciting things because it has been a rough It's been a rough, week. rough, rough, rough week. Um, yes. We saw the Tree of Life shooting at the synagogue. We saw the shooting of um, people who were just going to get their groceries at a Kroger. Of course, there were nearly a dozen people that we know of, high-profile Democrats and people who've spoken out against Trump, um, that received suspicious th- packages, really bombs in the mail, Um I've been trying to make sense of it, and I realize I actually don't want any of this to make any sense to me. I do not want this kind of hate and anguish to be sensical because there's no logic beneath it. There's no log- logic mm-hmm. behind it. And I, you know, these are the moments when, like, love is harder to find, but it is all the more necessary. And I think it's happening on so many different levels. It feels like an all-out, you know, assault on so many different communities. You're seeing the sort of violence in the streets where you have people, you know, with guns that they shouldn't have gotten access to, you know, shooting up grocery stores and shooting up synagogues. Uh, And then you see sort of at the systemic level how, like, we're telling people to vote, like, you should vote these people out of office that are contributing to this climate, that are contributing to spreading misinformation that so many of, you know, the shooters themselves were consuming. 
Uh, and then you see what they're doing with votes, right? How they're just throwing out votes or, or they're disenfranchising so many people. Like the yeah, whole, switching the whole them, ticket. You're switching like, the what? machines. Like it's like 30% of all the vote machines in Texas. Let's be very clear. Wow. Ted Cruz does not mean anything good for 30%. Texas or the rest and of the country. And we should use this as an opportunity to also say, if you're someone in Texas, but really anywhere, please, please, please double check your ballot before submitting it. If you vote straight party. That's right. Uh, on the, on the, or vote for the Democrats on a straight ticket. Uh, because a lot of what is happening is that people will vote straight ticket, but it is going for a cruise instead of Beto, yeah. and then the rest are Democrats. So yeah. they'll just switch that one vote, really which wild. is the problem. Right. And if you have a problem at the polls, call one eight six six our vote. It's one eight six six our vote. The other thing too is shout out to all the incredible postal service employees who have been the people closest to the bombs in in the beginning. The other yeah. people who had to like find the packages, report the packages. That is like I can only imagine what that felt like. Mm-hmm. It is you know when you think about these three incidents, it is this or these three acts of terror. There is a question of like what do you do, and I and I do think that so much of it is like how do we. Uh, start to think about like what are the system structures and beliefs that allowed these things to happen in the first place. And when we talk about Trump, mm-hmm. right, that Trump, uh, Trump didn't create racism. He didn't create anti-Semitism. Like he is uh, the manifestation of it in the highest office in in the land. Like where did it come from, right? Mm-hmm. And like what allows? Like I didn't even know that platform Gab they just got shut down. I didn't even know. Oh yeah. Wait, they shut it down? Yeah. Or like the the per, the like company that hosts the platform said they're not going to host it anymore, so it's like temporarily shut Good. down. I hadn't even heard of that. I was like, I didn't even know Hate had found like a new platform to be on. Uh, so mm. it's those sort of things to like be mindful of. Like, where are people being radicalized online, and by whom? Right. And by whom? Um, and because there are knowledge spreads, obviously, but we should always be able to point to the source accurately name the source and to your point, shut it down. I'm thinking about some of the rhetoric that we're hearing, you know, so part of what is uh, perceivably radicalized so many of these, uh, or two of these people um, is the sort of uh, conversation around the caravan coming from Central America. And part of what's being said is that uh, you know, Pence said this and Trump said this and others have said this, but like they'll say there are there are Middle Easterners uh, hidden in this caravan and and we have to be like very, very careful. And and so two things about that, right? Like one, there actually doesn't seem to be any truth to that claim. Like they say that without providing any evidence. But second, and this is important too, like even if it were true, there's nothing about being Middle Eastern that means you are dangerous or that means you're a threat, right? Like what he's doing is using Middle Eastern as a metonym for mm-hmm. a terrorist, which in a, in a way that's using Middle Eastern as a slur. The threat to this country uh, is not coming from Central American immigrants. It is not coming from uh, little Middle Easterners largely. It is coming from white men it's who are being grown. radicalized by uh, by the rhetoric of, of people coming from the top. And so I think it's just really important that Amid the onslaught of rhetoric, we like continue to really interrogate what is being said, even when it seems like it's being explicit. And Clay, you said he was using a metonym. Can you? What is a metonym? Yeah, I've been I've been in my dissertation work all day. Sorry, I'm <laughs> like. Um, so a metonym is a word that offers or exists as a sort of substitute for another word, right? So you say this thing, but you really mean something else. Okay. Mm-hmm. When Pence says Middle Easterners are coming in the caravan. He's really trying to say terrorists are coming in the caravan, but he just, he doesn't have to because we understand what's being implied by that, by the context of that word. We have to collectively reckon with the fact that hate for too long has been a winning strategy because 
politicians like the ones that we are talking so much about have relied on the stoking of fear and the creative language, to your point, Clint, that they use around hating people in order to drum up votes. But I genuinely believe that there is a collective responsibility to always call a thing a thing. And Mm -hmm. hate should never, ever be a winning strategy. So I want to just say, and this makes me think about this conversation, but like, what does voting do and what doesn't it do? And like, what voting doesn't do is undo the centuries of belief and ideology that lead to these things. What voting Mm -hmm. does do is like help us get closer and closer to changing the systems and structures that can actually like change us the fabric of how people interact that will then do the work of uh, some of the work of like the beliefs and values. And I'm mindful of that. Don't go anywhere. More Politic the People is coming. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made In Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made In. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made In Cookware. Shop chef-quality pots and pans at madeincookware.com. Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, They sent me the Factor Meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash people. What's the journalist name who got killed in Saudi Arabia and everybody's mm. acting like? And not oh, everybody. Khashoggi. 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 Like Saudi Arabia, I don't know if you saw a Saudi Arabian official recently just said that the West was being hysterical yeah. about about his death. And you're like, you which killed is, him. Which is also wild considering the fact that this administration is trying to pretend like either it didn't happen or the people who are probably guilty of it didn't do it. Yeah. Right. So like our administration is playing they the game that they want him to play. And put it in a well. We're being hysterical, which is just insulting. All this is trickery. like some cartel, like this is some like next level type yeah, I mean, organized operation. Like, I don't even know. This is like, if, if this happened in a movie, like you wouldn't think that that was right, realistic. You'd be like, wow, they'd be really dramatic. I will say yeah, shout like out the to lengths that they're going. Hassan Minaj's new show, Patriot Act. The second episode is about Saudi Arabia. And mm-hmm. I learned so much about MBS and this, this, the issue around the journalist uh, on Hassan, Hassan Minaj's show that I watched this morning. But, uh, but yeah, I just wanted to book in that with the like add to the, yeah. wildness of the week because that it has is. happened. So speaking about misinformation and some of the information that's coming out from Mike Pence and other elected officials, a study just came out from Pew Research Center that looked at the ability of various demographics to interpret what's fact and what is opinion uh, among all of the news that they're receiving. So they asked a range of questions, five factual statements and five opinion statements, uh, and tried to see to what extent people could recognize what was actually a fact and what was opinion. So for example, a fact would be something like, President Barack Obama was born in the United States, a fact. An opinion would be, government is almost always wasteful and inefficient. What they found that was interesting was that older Americans, so those in particular who are 50 years old and above, uh, had a harder time distinguishing what was fact and what was opinion, uh, and that younger Americans, so ages 18 through 29, were actually the best at navigating that information and, and being able to identify it correctly. So this is interesting in a number of ways. I think the first is, you know, obviously fake news is a big problem. Obviously, we've seen a number of people on Fox News and people who are current elected officials uh, attempt to spread misinformation. And those demographics that they are targeting tend to be older. They tend to skew wider. uh, And this sort of provides some evidence that is, in fact, easier to spread misinformation to that demographic. Uh, And then the second thing that's interesting is that this correlates with uh, exposure to television news. So your sort of lack of ability to be able to distinguish fact from opinion uh, actually correlates with the amount of television news that you're receiving. So if you watch television news more, you have a harder time distinguishing what is actually a fact and what is not. Uh, And then the final thing that was interesting about this study is that uh, it cites previous research that found that older Americans are actually more confident in their ability to discern fact from opinion, despite actually not being as good at doing that. You know, I, um, in reading the article that you sent over, Sam, was thinking a lot about growing up in the Midwest. So I am from St. Louis, which means that I share a home state with Rush Limbaugh. Nice. (laughs) You know, clearly one of the godfathers of conservative talk radio. And folks like him and Sean Hannity and, and all of these other folks were very clearly preying on the fact that lots of people would only ever listen to them to get any kind of information on what's happening in the world. Mm -hmm. Like their ratings relied on being 
so sensational and so outrageous and saying the most outlandish thing be in part because they knew that folks would hold on tight to it and then tune in the next day, right? And they wouldn't tune in any, anywhere else. So that means that you can appeal more greatly to advertisers and folks who want to invest in your programming because it's like, I literally own this sector of society. And so this kind of news does not mean that there is something wrong with older Americans, right? It means that there's something wrong with an industry that preys upon the fact um, that that this has been a trend for a while. It's interesting. I want to read a piece one day about like how Twitter has changed the way that we think of and consume news. Like clearly, it has changed how we consume news. But the fact that we can watch like journalists who before we would have only ever known their bylines talk to each other and about their pieces, and now like I know so much more information about those people that that make it relatively clear where they stand on a range of different issues. And and so so I think that that's important to remember, you know, just remembering that we everybody has a point of view that uh, that is shaping the way that they think about the, the thing that they're writing and the way that they're talking about it. But what's especially insidious about the Fox News folks is that, like, they try to have it both ways. You know, for example, in Sean Hannity in 2016, he told the New York Times, like, I, I've never claimed to be a journalist. I'm not a journalist. I'm a talk show host. And then in 2017, he was like, oh, I'm I'm a journalist. I'm an advocacy journalist. And so, you know, so he had, tries to to do whatever is most convenient for him. So obviously the clear conflict of interest with, you know, him being represented by Michael Cohen and Donald Trump being represented by Michael Cohen as well. But but also the fact that he's like one of Donald Trump's closest confidants. I mean, he, Donald Trump, and he, it's like well-documented that he, like Trump calls him and asks for advice on the phone on a range of political topics. And and the fact that they, you know, someone would present or operate under the pretense that they are an obj- a journalist simply breaking news or, or reporting facts is clearly baloney. There were a lot of things that this made me think of. Um, one is that there's a corollary study that is mentioned in the study that you highlight Uh, Sam, that talks about older people are more likely than younger people to believe television news, which you talked about. What's fascinating about that, though, is this question about, like, what is the future of television news? So, like, I think what this study sort of pushes on is this notion that young people who believe in social media more, who have more sort of, uh, who trust social media platforms, I think there was this knee-jerk reaction that, like, they're not as informed because they're, like, playing on Snapchat all day. In in reality... (laughs) it looks like they're actually more informed. And I think the part of that, Brittany, is sort of pushing a little bit on what you said, pushing in a good way, is that I think the soft skill in, in Clint sort of building on what you said, the soft skill of being able to like look on Twitter, go back and double check this yeah. fact, read another thing, see somebody's comment about it, actually just like rounds out your perspective just quicker than the generation ahead of us. Yeah. So not that it's their fault that they, you know, believe, you know, these AM radio stations, but it is that, like, we have the soft skill of, like, being able to play with information just so much quicker because of our access to technology. So that, that was really interesting. Uh, what was also another finding was that people actually, younger people and older people still believe in newspaper and radio to the same degrees. So that, to me, is, like, this question of, like, what what is going to happen to television? But also, like... You know, I I severely underplay the importance of radio in black communities. That the radio is still like one of the most effective ways to do ads for political campaigns. That like a lot of people still listen to the radio. And like, Mm -hmm. so I do think there is something about like a generation before us that was used to having like 
three TV stations. There were like three people to follow. Those are the people you trusted. And like looking at how that actually translates into this age, I think that that is sort of interesting. Uh, and that what the data also shows is this notion of like more pe- younger people are like more critical of the news sources. And I think part of that is this idea of like, we just have so much access to so many different takes immediately. And Brittany, when you talked about this notion of like the right wing sort of radio stations, TV stations, preying on people, what they have figured out how to do is present like brazenness as honesty. Yeah. It's like they present it, it's so bold, the lie is so big. That, that it's you're brave like, and courageous. Yes, yeah. it's like bravery. It is mm-hmm. honest. It is like mm-hmm. hard hitting. Here are the things they won't tell you. Here's yes. what they and won't like, show on the news. That is a yeah. lie. Like that's just not yes. true. Yes. And trying to figure out like how do we make sure that when we think about on the left this idea of like, you know, we take the high road, it's like you can actually take the high road. You can, you can take the high road so many times that you actually become disconnected from the people that you say you're speaking to. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has happened a lot in the media. But Sam, this article, I just it was really fascinating to think about this research and the implications that it has on our work. I always say that I think the protest saved like print news is that it was all these media outlets actually telling stories about our lives that I'd never, ever seen before. And like all of them were telling stories about the protest in a way that really changed the way that I consume news. And I think that's true for a lot of people. So we talk often about criminal justice on the podcast. We talk a little bit less, although we've spoken about it before, around juries. Um, And as you probably would suspect, racism is playing a major role in the makeup of juries nationwide. In a recent article by Vox, they explain that um, exactly how this happened. So basically, and, you know, all of my lawyer friends, feel free to correct me, but this is what I read in, in multiple sources, right? So there are essentially two main ways to get rid of a juror pre-trial, before a trial begins. One is voir dire, where you are dismissing a potential juror because you believe that they'll show bias and you have to explain what that cause is. The other is that there are peremptory challenges. And I think that there are three or four jurors that you can actually dismiss with no explanation needed. Those are peremptory challenges. So essentially, if you are going through this process of jury selection, and I, as a counsel, feel that the other counsel um, are leveraging race and racism in their selection process, I can cite a precedent called Batson versus Kentucky. That precedent essentially provides that race cannot be a factor in jury selection. But apparently what is known to be true in legal circles countrywide is that Batson is pretty much a joke when it actually comes to blocking racism in jury selection. So when a Batson challenge is called, the accused lawyer basically only has to share a race-neutral reason for the dismissal. We've discussed many times before that very little in life is actually race-neutral, especially not in a courtroom. The reason that they might give could be that the potential juror is unemployed and therefore somehow unstable. And that last example is actually not one that I'm making up. It is from a district attorney training video in 1987 in Philadelphia, where the instructor is literally talking about how to dismiss black jurors and avoid a Batson violation. So why does this matter? This matters because, you've already guessed it, all white juries are more harsh, commit more errors, and discuss fewer facts of the case when it comes to Black defendants. Uh, We saw that most historically in the case uh, against the people who lynched Emmett Till, but that is not nearly the most recent example of that happening. Um, 
In North Carolina, black jurors were struck from juries two and a half more times than any other jurors. The Equal Justice Initiative looked at outcomes in Houston County, Alabama, where the county is 27% black, but half of the juries that handed down death sentences were all white, and the other half only had one black juror, in a place where, again, black folks make up over a quarter of the population. There's another study with similar outcomes in South Carolina. Um, Quite simply, being judged by a jury of someone other than your peers is a matter of life and death freedom or incarceration for black people. And some people have suggested that selecting jurors from a pool that includes people who are licensed but not necessarily registered to vote will lead to more diverse juries. But we also know that this is where personal leadership matters. If you look at the jury that convicted Officer Jason Van Dyke for killing Laquan McDonald in Chicago, a case we talked about a few weeks ago, that jury was majority white and they still convicted him of second degree murder. So it matters that white people are facing their bias and it matters that they're developing in their equity mindsets. It matters that white people who have been educated and are evolving on those things are teaching other white people to do the same. And I will never, ever, ever believe that the burden of fixing discriminatory systems should be on the oppressed. But in the short term, it would be short-sighted for us to forget that being registered to vote means that you can serve on a jury. And until the rules change, not being registered means that you are potentially relinquishing a place or a voice for people like us that can make a difference in one of those trials. So, Brittany, I'm glad you mentioned the data on peremptory strikes and how study after study after study has found that prosecutors are using that as a tool to intentionally exclude Black people from juries. Uh, What's also interesting about this that I didn't know was that each state has a different number of uh, peremptory strikes that prosecutors are allowed uh, based on state law. And so in some states, yeah, so in some states you're allowed four strikes and some states you're allowed up to 20. But part of this is recognizing that not every state does it the same and that you know, there doesn't have to be 20 peremptory strikes. There can be four. There can be fewer than four if your state passes legislation to change that. And that should be a part of, you know, what we're pushing for in communities and, and in state legislatures across the country. Uh, and then, you know, the other piece of this is, you know, asking basic questions like, why do we allow peremptory strikes at all? Uh, and, you know, shouldn't there have to be some sort of justification or cause for striking any jur- juror from the jury? Um and without that, what types of accountability measures and systems and structures need to be in place to make sure that that tool is being used in an unbiased way? Um, I'm not convinced that, that that can ultimately be done and, and that peremptory strikes can, can be used in an equitable way. I haven't seen it done. I'd be interested to know, you know it, where the data shows that this is actually, like maybe there are places that are using this in a different way. Um, but those are some of the questions that I thought of just, just diving into this subject initially. The part of this article that was most stunning, um, but also not stunning at all, was the the part you alluded to about the the video of the man. The was it a prosecutor or, or yeah, it wasn't that wild the, from Philadelphia. Yeah, yeah. of the attorney in Philadelphia. Who, <laughs> it's just it's it's he was like literally are, like here's how you get the black people off the jury and don't man get in like we for it. it was literally we are we are so well versed in in decoding the coded racism that exists around that it's almost like comically Sometimes refreshing when people are just like, this is how well, you like, keep black racist. people right. off the Let jury. me show you how. Right. Right. Please model yeah, me. Like, Let me fam- model racism for you. Please learn and practice. Right. I'm like, fam, you, did you not know a camera was on? Like this, like it, it was, he this is, wasn't no, an he iPhone. He is mic'd and standing in, like this is a training it's video. Modeling. They filmed it I do in order to teach you do incoming district attorneys. Lord, I, do. I do, we but do, this, you, you do. do right. That's how you that's it's, how you it's teach wild. It. Like this, they're so brazen. And it's not just this. It's like there are police trainers that are like, yep. this is how you 
get off of a police shooting without being indicted. Like all of this stuff, there's like videos for it. Like they don't, man, it's just brazen, right? I will say, so there are a lot of things about this that really stuck out to me. One is that there's another court case uh, where the, sh- the people, people of color were being struck for using monosyllabic words. I thought that was really wild. Uh, and then their body language was like, a, these were some factors that were included in why they were struck. And, and the, it was contested and it got overruled, but like the thought that somebody using monosyllabic words is like a reason to strike them just seems so wild. The other, and Brittany, you sort of alluded to this with the Laquan McDonald case, is that there's one black juror in that case. Mm-hmm. She actually has done a public interview. Her mm-hmm. name is Charlene Cook. You should all check out the interview that she did with the Chicago Tribune. It's an incredible lens into her experience on the jury. So there are a lot of things that I didn't know about uh, how you get chosen to be in a jury. There are actually only two states, Ohio and Wyoming, that solely use the registered voter rolls to choose people for jury duty. That most other places use a combination of the voter rolls, driver's licenses, and some places actually use tax databases, like ta- like who's filed taxes in those places, uh, to be on jury. So like, I didn't know that. That was interesting. I'd always been told that voting was like the thing, and I know people who aren't registered to vote because they don't want to be on juries. But it's actually not just uh, voting. It is or being registered to vote. It is driver's licenses and tax rolls. And I, it made me to think about, you know, on the pod before, we've talked about the way that Internal Affairs is depicted on TV. That like, you can't name three movies where Internal Affairs wasn't like the bad guys, the throwaway officers, those sort of things. Is that I actually, like, struggled to find movies or depictions of jury duty in popular culture that weren't perceived as a burden. Yeah. That weren't, like, seen as this thing that, like, somebody's trying Ugh, to avoid. Jury duty. Right, you're like, oh, my God, I got to get off work. As opposed to this, like, incredible way to interact with the system that you, you literally, you could yeah. be a lever for, like, Justice. Yeah. You know, like literally you could be that person. Like you could be the person in the room being like asking the tough question, like making people reconsider the evidence. They're like, we've actually not seen that on the screen before in a way that like we can share an experience. And I do think that for our storytellers out there that we have to remember that every story is a lesson in power. So for my news, uh, I'm thinking of something written by Dr. Poon, who's a assistant professor of higher education and leadership at Colorado State University and who's a scholar and expert specializing in Asian American and higher education. And she wrote this piece about many of the misconceptions that people have around affirmative action and specifically what those misconceptions look like in the Asian American community, which, as many people know right now, is at the center of a huge lawsuit uh, around Harvard. Uh, and so they interviewed three dozen people who were both opponents and advocates of affirmative action. And and it was interesting to me because I think it reflected it reflected these misconceptions in the Asian American community, but they were reflective of broader misconceptions that people who both fight for and against this, this important thing uh, often misunderstand. And so for opponents, many people explain that they believed affirmative action was involved in, quote, racial quotas, uh, which was declared unconstitutional in 1978 by the Regents of University of California versus Bakke. They also thought it involved racial bonus points for Black and Latino applicants uh, and that those racial bonus points weren't given to Asian Americans uh, neither of which is true because that was outlined completely in a 2003 case uh, in the Supreme Court. And so among 30 of the interview participants who were both supporters and opponents, many also stated that the purpose of affirmative action in higher education was to bring about racial parity and equity in college access. Uh, and racial parity and equity were, in fact, historical goals of affirmative action. Uh, that's that's how they were thinking about it. But how the, the reality is that those aims have not been in line with the current legal purpose for race-conscious admission since the 1978 Bakke case. And so just as a 
side note, for folks who don't know what happened uh, with this Baki case, it's that for a long time, people had been talking about affirmative action in the context of making amends for historical wrongdoing against Black people, whether it be for slavery, for housing discrimination, for Jim Crow. I mean, you know, the list goes on and on. But in 1978, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that racial quotas were unconstitutional in the Baki case, and it shifted the legal justification for using race as a factor in admissions away from the goal of achieving racial equity and addressing historical racial injustices, which... I and I think many, all of us believe uh, should be the case, right? We should have a system that is specifically addressing the wrongdoings uh, that certain communities experience, but that justification was rendered unconstitutional in 1978. And instead, the new goal was uh, talked about as cultivating a diverse educational environment that benefits all students. And so because of that case, that is the, the justification that people have to use when they go in front of the Supreme Court to argue about this, is that Harvard can't say Harvard or anywhere can't go up and say, actually, what's really important is for us to recognize the ways in which we and the larger society were complicit in making it so that certain communities weren't afforded opportunities in educational or economic upward mobility. And this is us making amends for things that we specifically participated in, whether it be the Black community or the Jewish community or the Latino community or whoever. Um, but we can't do that anymore since 1978. And, and that has hindered and limited the scope around which the conversations around affirmative action take place. And I think that just as a, a final thing to wrap up on is, is that in this case with the, the Harvard students and the Asian American students who are suing Harvard, uh, the, the, the idea is that they're suggesting that Asian American students are being punished um, and are not actually being let in at the rate at which they should based on their test scores and extracurriculars and, and the sort of totality of their application. Um, but, but it's interesting, and in, in Dr. Poon points this out, when you look at the numbers at Harvard, Asian Americans represent about 23% of the class of 2019, uh, which reflects a 29% increase over the last decade. You know, this was one of the places where I had to recognize myself sometime as, sometimes as a teacher and sometimes as a student. There was a lot that I learned from this piece, in particular around the fact that affirmative action in a modern sense is about diversity and not parity. One of the things that worries me, because I agree with you, Clint, I actually do believe that there should be clear set programs that are helping to right historical wrongs and create equity in the world. Um, I worry that diversity now means so many things that it doesn't mean anything. Because mm. especially if you look at admissions processes and how just generally people talk about a diverse room or a diverse group or a diverse board, they don't just talk about race, ethnicity, gender, sexual orientation, gender identity, immigration. They don't just talk about our social identifiers. They're also like, well, you're a conservative diversity and you're a liberal. Diversity of thought or diversity of life experiences, right? Right. You lived abroad or, you know, you like to bike to work <laughs> like habits and identity are not the same. Right. You can bike to work every day and still not properly help represent an equitable society. Right. Like, let me be very clear. Ideology and identity are just not the same. And I worry that in so many settings, whether they are collegiate or corporate or somewhere in between, we are using the word diversity and weaponizing it against the very people who were supposed to be included because of that language. 
And yep. on top of that, oftentimes yep. what happens is that we talk about diversity in the context of it benefiting white people, right? Like we, like you yeah. want a diverse shipping the black people right. so white people can have a better experience, right? Right, exactly. Just like bring in Latinos and yeah. bring in uh, immigrants and bring in black people so that bring in women uh, so that white men can people learn bring in women, and, yeah, exactly. Rather than recognizing the ways that these communities, whether it be immigrants or women or uh, black folks or wh- whomever it might be that there are social responsibilities that all of these institutions should have and should understand themselves as having uh, in in making sure that they are part of what it means to build a better society. Because we have not reckoned with the fact that there are clear historical wrongs that have contemporary effect, people aren't actually willing to concede that there should be programming to level the playing field. And even still, after centering white people, after centering this goal of diversity as being helpful to white students as well, even after all that, the Supreme Court now has the votes to dismantle affirmative action in its entirety now that Kavanaugh's on the court. Uh, so we have to think bigger uh, about what it takes to put these things in practice nationwide that, that are strong enough not to be dismantled and then pay attention to the courts to preserve those gains to come. I will say what was most fascinating about this, Clint, is that it was a survey of experts that it was one of those things that if I had read this and this was a survey of like sort of everyday people who just, it was their thoughts about affirmative action, I think I would think differently about it. But because <laughs> it was experts on both sides, the people who are like fighting the hardest for affirmative action, the people who are opposing it the most vigorously actually didn't even understand some of the like core tenets of it. And I mm-hmm. think that that is like a model for all of the spaces of justice is really fascinating. That like, what does it look like? Like you just assume that the person who like is from the organization to support affirmative action, like you just expect that they're the expert. You're like, they must know. And it's like what the data shows is that there's some big gaps in that. So that is frightening for a lot of reasons, if not only because if you don't understand the problem well, like I don't know how you actually fight for the solution in a way that makes sense. Like if you just don't, mm-hmm. if you fundamentally don't understand it and like, what does that mean for our strategy going forward? And this this study for me was like a, a reminder to question and to like push people to continue to do the work in their respective fields. Because what, what I think I've seen for sure is that people get to that cool title, they become the like director of so-and-so, and then they actually stop learning. So when Brittany sort of talks about this idea of like transitioning from a teacher to a learner, teacher to a student, and like always sort of being a little bit of both, like that is a reminder that like we get our strength and our power from understanding that we, we live in both spaces all the time. And there are a lot of people who deem themselves experts who like stop the learning, and that was really dangerous. The last thing I'll say is this idea of equity and equality that we all always talk about equality as being the everybody gets the same thing. Equity is that people get what they need and deserve. And, you know, people talk about this notion of truth and reconciliation without owning that the truth has to come before the reconciliation. And when we think about affirmative action, it's one of those things that if we don't actually deal with the truth of how we got to the disparate outcomes, like we'll never ever deal with like a reconciliation that actually does anything about those outcomes. And if we aren't rooted in equity, this notion that like people have to get what they deserve and what they need, especially when it's making up for uh, intentional harm that was done, we'll never get justice. Okay, so my news is about enrollment. A lot of us on the pod have been teachers. I worked at the school district. Brittany continues to work in education advocacy. And uh, Clint works in jails and prisons. And uh, Sam helps educate people every day in his work. But Chicago Public Schools is facing a 10,000 student enrollment drop this school year. 
And that is, so Chicago is one of the biggest school systems in the country. Uh, At the height of the school district, it had about 435,000 students. It's at about 371,000 currently and and continuing to decline. The district thinks that they're going to lose about 20,000 students over the next three years. Now, I wanted to bring this up for a host of reasons. In Baltimore, we were having some some intense uh, enrollment declines too. The, at the height of the school system in Baltimore, we had 100,000 kids. When I was most recently there, we had 80,000 and it's still sort of declining. Then the question becomes like, why does this matter? This matters for a host of reasons. One is around... Uh, funding for school systems. So when kids leave, the school system doesn't get any money for those kids. So there are so the remaining students that are left, you have to figure out like how to serve those students in a way that actually makes sense and supports them, given the huge funding cliff that's going to happen because of the loss. The second is I remember enrollment patterns often follow a population pattern. So when you see cities like Chicago, when you see cities like Baltimore, where people just aren't moving into them anymore, or they're moving out, for a host of reasons, safety, things like that, that like there's a lot of pressure on school systems to get enrollment up without the cities actually doing a, a campaign to like get people to move in the city or like to live in the city. There's another question about like where do the kids actually go? And in Baltimore, what we found is that there were a lot of students for years uh, who were still living in the city, but they were using somebody else's address to go to a different school in the county or trying to like figure out how they got better educational options in their mind, uh, given that they didn't have faith in the school system in some ways. And the fourth is this question about like, what actually, what does it mean to invest given the enrollment decline? So Chicago has a billion-dollar investment, a long-term capital plan that they're still going forward with despite the enrollment declines. Baltimore has a billion-dollar investment to make sure that every single building in the portfolio is uh, renovated in the next couple of years despite the decline. And the proponents of that say, like, that's a good thing because, you know, we have to make an investment. So if we ever want kids to come back, we need to make sure the schools actually look better, that they're richer programming, those sort of things. The opponents say, like, why would you continue to pump money into a district where, like, kids are choosing not to come? This tension about like what to do in the midst of enrollment declines is actually an important conversation that we don't have enough in public. As somebody who sat in school closure meetings and was a part of that process, I'll tell you, nobody ever wants to close a school. There is this question about like what happens when the money dries up. And in urban communities, we are not funding public education in a way that can withstand some of these enrollment declines. So I wanted to bring that here for us to talk about. What was particularly curious to me about the two articles that you sent was the fact that there are new schools being built and where they're potentially being built. That conversation is happening while community activists are standing up and saying, A, why are we not investing some of this money in existing public schools because there are still children there? And B, where are you actually going to be building these schools because we have opinions about that? And so when we look at the way gentrification is set up, there's a lot of uh, racial and economic diversity in that space, but essentially there are business owners and gentrifiers that are encouraging the new school that will be built over there to be built in gentrified neighborhoods. When we look at research that says that um, white people actually do not want school or neighborhood integration in the way that we all want to pretend like we do, um, that is curious to me, right? When we look at the fact when that when Black and Latinx students start to come to your child's school or when Black and Latinx families start to move into your neighborhood, neighborhood, white middle class people move out over and over and over again. It is curious to me about where you're going to build this school and who you are building it for. I think also what needs to constantly be asked is whose voices are listened to or not listened to 
in that process and how we can ensure that like as many people are at the are at the table um, in the process of making this decision as possible. My job was to go into schools and actually like tell the staff that they were that we were closing mm-hmm. the school and to transition the staff into new roles or like new buildings mm-hmm. or new like that was part of it and it was awful you know like nobody yeah you know, like uh, you know we'd have to tell the principal like hey just so you know like this is happening in it and and the timeline would be just tight you know it's like this is happening we got to move this or like when we had to merge schools because we were closing it's like well there aren't going to be two principals so like we got to tell one principal like <laughs> one of y'all got to go hey this is yeah. one of you won't be you know we you're going to be employed but like you know and, and all the teachers who have been teaching there right. for for decades. It's oh, upheaval. It was hard. It's, there's no and way was, to, there's no other way to describe say, it. I will say, as like both uh, somebody on the inside and an activist, it was really hard because people would come to the board meetings and make it out like we just like didn't believe in black. You know, they'd be like, you guys like don't, and it's like, we are making choices that are, <clears throat> we know it's like not good options, right? Like we want there to be more money. It's not more money. And I will say one of the things that I learned about enrollment that I just didn't understand is that so many people in our communities literally just need to be reminded of the process and asked to come like that. Like some of the enrollment stuff is as easy as like going to people's door and being like, please enroll your kid for kindergarten. Right. Like that is like, that actually works. It matters. And like people take for granted that like, Oh, there's a school system and people just like know the process to enroll. And you'd be shocked at the number of people who like, why would you know them process to enroll your kindergartner? If this is your first kid, like there's no reason why, like we don't give those instructions out at the hospital. Like you, there's not a reason why you just know that. Like we kind of should. We should. Yeah. And like, you know, I stopped taking for granted some of the basic things about this that like districts have responsibility to like listen and like reach out to people around the enrollment stuff because we were able to we did this campaign called Great Kids Come Back because uh, the district slogan was Great Kids Great Schools for a while and uh, it was really shocking how like if you just talk to some of the kids who dropped out or like moved to different schools and asked them what would you like to be different and respond to some of those mm-hmm. things shocking it actually worked <laughs> so a lot of lessons unbelievable learned. boom Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Don't go anywhere, there's more to come. As a chef and a restaurant owner, I'm as meticulous about my cookware as I am about my ingredients. That's why I love Made in Cookware. Each pan they make isn't just designed to perform, it's crafted to last. As a mom, I love that I can trust Made in. It's made from the world's finest materials, so I can feel good about what I'm feeding my family. I'm Chef Brooke Williamson, and I use Made in Cookware. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they, they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. And now my conversation with Valerie Jarrett, former presidential advisor to Obama and current board member of Lyft, and John Zimmer, the CEO of Lyft. Valerie and John, thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. 
Thanks for having us. We're thrilled to be with you, Deirdre. Valerie, let's start with you. How did you even get connected to Lyft? Like, what's what's that story? So while I was still in the White House, a lot of my the folks on my team were using Lyft. And I visited the headquarters as a part of my due diligence, just going around and talking to tech companies about the importance of diversity. And my team said, go to Lyft because their culture is great. They appreciate the importance of diversity, consider it a strength. And so I visited while I was still in the White House. And then when I left, my team started teasing me about how was I going to get around because I hadn't driven for myself in eight years. And so they said, you have to only use Lyft. You should use your pocketbook to demonstrate your values. And so I started using Lyft and I always talked to the drivers and I said, you know, why do you drive for Lyft? How do you feel you're valued? What are the reasons why you're doing this? And I heard all kinds of interesting stories. But the one constant delay was is that they felt as though they were well-treated, they were valued, and that they wanted to associate themselves with a company that believed in these core values of integrity and treating people decently and providing a valuable service. And so then through a mutual friend, I was connected to John and Logan, and we got together a few times, and I thought, well, the two people who set the tone, and I believe tone does start at the top, shared that appreciation. And also, they're kind of geeks, to tell you the truth. So, you know, I used to be head of the <laughs> Chicago Transit Authority in Chicago, and I was a commissioner of planning and development. And so I appreciate the importance of moving people around in a way that's easy and affordable and convenient and, and doesn't lead to congestion. And John, you know, I've read about the the history of Zimrod and and how it transformed into Lyft. I'd love to know because your background was hospitality, like like Valerie said. I'm sure you've learned a ton about transportation. You know, since Lyft has become a thing that we all use. Like, what have been some of the most surprising things that you just like didn't know about transportation that you know now? One of the most surprising things to me has been about uh, I learned from Logan's time when he was serving on a transit board is that when you pay to get on the bus. Uh, typically what you pay, let's say $3, only covers 30% of the operating cost. And so the actual cost of that trip may be about $10. And that's then dependent on tax revenue. So it would be policy we'd support to increase uh, the amount of funding going to public transit, but that's very difficult politically. And so the opportunity we saw is that the average American household is spending $9,000 every year on owning and operating a car and using their car 4% of the time. It was surprising me to hear that American families spend more money. 4%? 4%. 96% of the time, the personal vehicle is parked. And American families spend more money on their car than on food. And, And those, to me, are shocking concepts and facts you know, while, you know, add in all the other externalities that we're sitting in traffic, we've designed our cities around cars. It, it's a huge opportunity. And when you put the lens of hospitality on that, in hospitality, you think about how do you provide great service to the customer? How do you empower the front line, in this case, drivers to deliver that great service? How do you increase occupancy? It was actually a way more parallel to hospitality than I originally thought. All the ride-sharing apps have been criticized for pulling people away from public transportation, that that we should be doubling down on people being on buses and subways, that we shouldn't be contributing to the pollution and the sort of sense of individualism that a seeming spike in cars are going to be on the road. How do you respond to that? 
Well, I'd say I, I agree. We we don't want to or intend to be part of a solution that adds to traffic and adds to single occupancy vehicle usage. I'd say that we're still extremely early. Lyft and our industry account for less than 1% of miles traveled in the United States. And we first had to create a product that competed with car ownership. If you think about kind of the American dream and the, the, the thing that's been advertised and marketed to us uh, over the last several decades is this idea that you need to own a car to have freedom. And, and that reality is, is not something that we think is true. But when you have a car in your garage or your parking spot outside your apartment, it's incredibly convenient. So step one is, how do we get a ride for you when you need it to compete with that false convenience of car ownership? Then we launch shared rides. How do we increase occupancy of the vehicle, lower cost, and uh, reduce emissions? We've also purchased carbon offsets and invested in projects that would not have happened otherwise for all the emissions that are coming off the platform. That's step one. We intend to move the entire transit infrastructure that we're part of off of carbon to move towards electric vehicles. That's another big step. We're investing in bikes and scooters and want to mode shift away from single occupancy vehicles. And we've launched transit in our app so that you can see transit near you. So I agree with the sentiment that we need to reduce congestion, reduce traffic, and get people out of their car. And we needed a, a basis to start doing that. And Valerie, you, uh, it's my understanding that, that you sometimes liaise with public officials when they are struggling with the ride-sharing apps, certainly Lyft. Uh, what have you found to be the things that people in government are interested in talking about when they think about uh, Lyft or ride-sharing in general? Well, I think there is an overlap of, of public policy interests. I think we all want to make sure we're reducing congestion. We all want to make sure that we're not contributing to pollution, as John mentioned. We all want to make sure that people are able to use this method to supplement or be their income and do it in a way that allows people to take care of their families. And so I think that there is an overlap of interest. There may just be an issue as to how we achieve those goals. And as you know, I started my career in local government when I joined the public sector, and I always appreciated partners who wanted to come in and noodle through thorny issues together. And that's what this team has done. And I was thrilled that they recently brought on Anthony Fox, President Obama's former Secretary of Transportation, who was also a mayor and understands the importance of having that uh, very open and constructive dialogue. You know, one of the things that people also sort of are challenged by is, is the rate that uh, Lyft drivers make. So when I looked at my the data I had, it said that Lyft drivers make about $14.83 an hour, which uh, after costs and including downtime, which doesn't seem like a, a livable wage in, in a lot of places, close to $15. Um, how do you think about the compensation of drivers, which again was like a, a big deal in New York City uh, and is seeming to be a, a more part of the public conversation about Lyft uh, now? It's incredibly important and it's a responsibility and a weight that I think that we, you know, Logan and I carry on our shoulders and take very seriously. The data we have, which is from our platform, is that in periods one, two, and three, so when you're waiting for a ride and on your way to a ride, as well as, you know, with someone, uh, the average earnings is uh, between $19 and $20 an hour. In periods two and three, when you may be in that waiting period, you were waiting in multiple apps or you were driving another app, period two or three, we know exactly what the driver's doing. That, that number is about $29 an hour. Can you, can you explain the periods for us? Yeah. So period one is I'm waiting for a ride. I have the app open. 
I may be giving a ride on another platform. I may be sitting on my couch or I may be in my car waiting for a ride. I'm the driver. When you say I, I'm, yeah, I'm the, the driver. I'm by the way, I do drive on occasion. But yes, putting myself in the shoes of the driver. That's what happens in period one. In period two, I'm on my way to pick up a passenger. And in period three, I'm with the passenger. And so if you include all periods, drivers average between $19 and $20 an hour pre-expenses and then have hmm. 3 to $5 of expenses. If you just look at period two, as I mentioned, that's another uh, about $10 higher. So my guess is it's somewhere between those two numbers. And we're, we're working to also help drivers on that three to $5 of expenses. We're building out service centers so we can help drivers with oil changes. Oh, wow. Uh, we're building out a rental car program called Express Drive, which you know, others in our industry had created a predatory lease, basically, for our drivers that locked them in for three years to a, to a rate. We said, what, what, what's best for our driver community is a weekly rental. So we've created that, and we have thousands of vehicles now. And if you think about it, not only is this good for someone who maybe doesn't want to put the wear and tear on their own car, if you ask people that want to earn $20 an hour, if you look at the entire U.S. population and say, well, you also have to have a, a new car in good condition— there are a lot of people that can't afford to have that car. So Lyft can not only help provide an earning opportunity, but can be a platform for economic mobility whereby someone can fund and, and get access to a vehicle, which could be a stepping stone for further opportunities. Oh, wow. Because it's a new type of work, it, it raises important questions around benefits, around uh, pay. And so we're not going to shy away from that. We want to be leaders on that. We have more work to do. And, and there's, there's more to be done at a policy level, which is why I'm really happy Valerie is part of this. Now, John, you talked about, and this is for you too, Valerie, uh, you talked about that you drive sometimes. Do you drive often? How's your driver experience been? Valerie, have you ever driven? How's your driver experience been? Yes. Yeah, so um, I have a tradition of driving every New Year's, which uh, my wife's not always in love with, but I, I've done it for <laughs> six years now. Um, and the reason I do it on New Year's is because it's a really important night for the community. There's a lot of passengers out having a great time, celebrating, and drinking. And we need a lot of drivers during that time to take care of providing a safe ride for our passenger community. Uh, but the drivers that are choosing to do that are making a sacrifice of not being with their family and not celebrating themselves. So I feel like it's important to, to be part of that. And so I've done that every New Year's, and I'll do that again this year. Uh, and then in between, um, every few months, I try to do it. And it's, it's an amazing experience, an amazing reminder uh, to build respect for the work that our driver community does and, and the type of hospitality that, that they provide. I wanted to ask, though, and Valerie, we'll start with you, is that Lyft recently put out stats around diversity and the numbers weren't as great as people wanted them to be. Like the whole tech industry sort of struggles with women, with people of color, like making sure that the ranks are, are diverse in ways that reflect general society or the ideals that we have. What can you do? What can we do uh, to make sure that the numbers get better, that the trends actually grow as much as the conversation's growing? Yeah, it's a really good question. So first of all, Lyft is certainly ahead of the general market, but that's not good enough for us, and it's not good enough for John and for Logan. And so there are a variety of things that uh, they have in place right now to increase diversity. Recognizing that diversity is a strength, and I think that begins at the top, that core value of saying this is important to us and we want to do it well. So they do a range of things. So, for example, everybody who interviews people for a job has to go through implicit bias training. 
because we want to make sure you know people come to the table with a whole bunch of issues that have nothing to do with the culture at Lyft. It's just life experiences, and we want to neutralize that. They also have in place the Rooney Rule to make sure that the applicant pool includes diverse candidates, and I think that's important as well. And so uh, we have achieved a great deal in terms of senior people who are women, and we're working vigilantly to make sure that that also includes people of color. And much of it just has to do with what is the culture that you want to create, and do the people at the top have a commitment to those core values, and are they taking the concrete evidence-based steps that the market has shown will enable us to achieve those goals. So it's a work in progress. I can tell you it's something from the board's perspective that we talk about all the time. And I think that they've recruited in senior people who are women who are also helping achieve those goals and people of color, women and people of color and senior spots. And John? This is, yes, the right moral and and values-based thing to do, but it's also the right thing for the business. And, And I think that's important because it can take you know this important movement and and just make it such that every company knows the real value and the need to do this. You know, one example is we recently uh, have translated the, the app so that uh, we'll have multiple languages for drivers. Uh, one of the main ways that we were able to do that is because we had a diverse team internally, uh, and now we're better able to serve our drivers. And so that's one example of many. And it doesn't always have to be that literal. That allows us to both do the right thing and and build a strong business. I also wanted to ask about um, something I know very little about, which is driverless cars. It seems like hocus pocus in some ways, but but apparently this is like the new thing. Is are you going to have driverless cars soon, John? Is this like a real thing, or is this like a, something that's cool to talk about that you don't think is ever going to happen? <laughs> it is. Uh, it is a real thing. Uh, it will be coming in the next few years. There's this idea that driverless cars will mean less drivers, which will negatively hurt the workforce. Is that not how? How do we start to think about that? Yeah, it's a it's an important question and one that we don't know exactly how this plays out in you know twenty, thirty, forty years from now. Our belief is that we will continue to need more drivers on the platform, and that that sounds counterintuitive, but we don't think that every ride type will, from a technical perspective, be possible to do with an autonomous vehicle. And then from a service perspective, be desired uh, from the customers. So if Lyft and Uber combined just do 1% of miles traveled in the United States today, and we believe that number will significantly increase, let's say 10x in the next 10 years, uh, you need you know just 20% of all trips to be happening with drivers to need twice as many drivers than you have today. So I, I don't think we'll need less drivers anywhere that I can see into the future. How do you think about your responsibility in this political climate and and why did you or what led to the decision to get people to the polls? And is there a part of that decision that I don't know? We care about the why behind our work. We care about waking up in the morning, feeling good about the work we're doing. We care about the the legacy that our team works on and, and leaves behind in our cities. We wouldn't be doing it otherwise. It's not interesting enough to us uh, otherwise. And we're, we're living in a time of uh, divisiveness. And something beautiful is that nearly 100 million people every month come together in lift rides, people from different backgrounds, people from different political beliefs, and they're talking and they're uh, learning from each other and they're arguing. And so I do think that we have an opportunity uh, at the center of human interaction to... 
to, to take more action. And voting is such a fundamental right. And 15 million people, eligible voters, did not turn out in the 2016 election due to transportation issues. And that to us is sad. It's not right. And we can do something about it. So we decided to take action. We're giving free rides to those in underserved areas that don't have access and can't afford transportation. And we're giving discounted rides to everyone across the country because voting is an American ideal and, and something that we stand for. I saw that you partner with Voto Latino. Uh, can you talk about that partnership? Yeah, so there, was, uh, there are multiple nonprofit uh, groups that we're working with. You know, another thing that we are well aware of is that we are not the experts on everything. And so while we have transportation ability to, to get people rides, we want to work with individuals. Federation for the Blind is another example of folks that haven't been able to vote, uh, and they can help uh, advise and provide access uh, to, to the populations that they're most close to. And Valerie, when you think about what's next for Lyft, like what do you, what are your like big ideas as a board member for like what you're looking for as they, as the company grows? Well, we're trying to capture market share. And I think if we do the best by our customers and we're creative and constantly thinking of new ways, I was very supportive of acquiring the scooter company. I, you see them now everywhere and that market can grow. And so if we can provide as many different options as possible, some that we'll profit from, some that we won't, but that our customers really think that we're thinking about them and how can they in the most affordable way, in the most um, efficient way, get where they want to go so that they can get on with their lives. I live on the south side of Chicago. Historically, it was nearly impossible to get a cab in my neighborhood. And I have never waited more than two or three minutes for a lift. And that's huge. And so the fact that they're able to deliver service in communities that have traditionally been underserved is another important uh, core value that I support. So I remember opening my app the other day and it was like, it was, I think it was like trade in or like don't use your car for a month and, and like use Lyft instead. And I'm interested in like, what have you learned from offering the subscription plan? Can you explain it for people that don't know what it is? Yeah, sure. So the idea is that for, it depends on the market, $299 or $399 a month, we could provide all the transportation that you need so that you don't need to own a car. You know, what we're learning and what, what we've been thinking about for a long time is the fact that car ownership has is like so uh, unfortunately core to what we think of historically about kind of America and freedom. But the reality of car ownership is not that. It's a $9,000 expense that you have to uh, take wherever you go and park and, and waste time and sit in traffic. And uh, the subscription is about changing behavior. People don't realize that in major urban environments, they're spending about $1,000 a month owning and operating a car. They think about their $200 lease, but there is fuel maintenance, parking, insurance. And, and so we need to educate people on how much their true cost is and provide a better alternative. Lyft just hired a head of social impact and uh, the first sustainability director. What's the, what is like the vision for what those roles will do? And, and like, will they have the resources to actually do it? Because one of the criticisms about tech is that they hire these like really cool titles that are like social impact. And it's like a staff, it's like a team of one who has no sort of 
power within the organization to actually make change. So wanted to ask about those. The individual leading social impact has been with us for several years, and the sustainability director is, is brand new. Uh, but we've already demonstrated uh, that that we're having real action. And a lot of what they're doing is bringing together a lot of the work that's already happening within the organization. And so tangible uh, wins and accomplishments that those individuals have already had. One, the director of sustainability has helped us offset all of the carbon emissions, not only from the rides, uh, but also from our office operations as well since joining just months ago. Uh, we became one of the largest um, purchasers of carbon offsets in the country. And we did it with care and attention to additionality, which ensures that we're investing in projects that, that may not have happened otherwise. On the social impact side, we've committed $1.5 million to relief rides. Uh, so in cases of big storms, uh, or, or even in situations, uh, we partner with the United Way of individuals who don't have access to get to a job interview. Uh, we were distributing over a million dollars in rides through that. Uh, we supported uh, March for Our Lives with rides. And, and as we talked about previously, uh, we're working really hard to help get out the vote for the 15 million eligible voters that didn't turn out in 2016. There's actually one, one more thing that uh, we're doing on the, on the social impact side. We're empowering passengers to round up and donate. So we have a, a program in the app where you can pick a charity, uh, arrange uh, from United Services Organization, Human Rights Campaign, ACLU, Girls Who Code, Habitat for Humanity, uh, and passengers have raised nearly $10 million for these charities. And, and this is something that we're, we're proud of, and we're, we're giving people an opportunity to uh, vote and take action, uh, even if it's uh, $0.35 cents a ride. Everybody can can do that. I guess I haven't found that feature in my in the app. I need to check that out. Yeah, if you check out the settings, there's a, a donate a button. You can pick the charity of choice. So if the ride is ten sixty five, it'll automatically round up to eleven, and it will top that off for a hundred percent. Will go to that charity. All of this represents corporate values, and the position of of John and Logan is, is that it's also good for business, but they have this opportunity to run a company. They're not interested in just simply providing transportation. They want to use their platform to be a force for good. Valerie, you've answered this because you were on the pod before. So I'll start with you, John. One of the questions that we ask everybody is, uh, what's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? Stay true to your your values. Uh, Howard Schultz said it to us in the in the early days. And I always believed it was true, uh, but it was really helpful to to get that uh, from someone who had been successful in business. And I think it's it's really served us served us well over the last six years. Mine, dear, is goodwill. Treat people the way you want to be treated, and it inevitably comes back at you. If not from the person that you were kind to, then from somebody else. And I think, particularly in this climate, we could all have um, use a little bit more goodwill. And uh, how can people stay abreast of what you both are doing? Well, you know, I'm pretty active on Twitter and I'm taking a liking to Instagram lately with photos uh, and you can tell stories there. So uh, and I also spend a lot of time with the mainstream old school media. And so I encourage people to follow me on those platforms. Try to be kind and decent. Remember what I said about goodwill. Uh, and uh, what's your Instagram? I don't even know your Instagram. It's Valerie B. Jarrett. Okay. And what about you, John? 
Maybe take Lyft, and, and there's a small chance I'll be your driver. <laughs> <laughs> there we go. Well, thank you both for joining us today on Pod to the People. Consider you both friends of the pod and can't wait to have you back. Thank Thanks. you. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod to the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcasts, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. Ask Sherwin-Williams and get 30% off Duration and Super Deck products May 17th through the 20th. That means 30% off our most popular color family, blue. Psychologists have found it to be soothing and relaxing, which makes it especially great for bedrooms and bathrooms. And of course, get 30% off all of our other colors. Shop the sale online or visit your neighborhood Sherwin-Williams store. Click the banner to learn more. Retail sales only. Some exclusions apply. See store for details. Hi, it's Martha Stewart. You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about dirt. At 3 a.m.? At all hours of the day, really. What people don't know is that not all dirt is the same. You need dirt with the right kind of nutrients. New miracle Grow organic raised bed and garden soil is so dense, so full of nutrient-rich, high-quality ingredients. miracle Grow is simply the best. 